0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with Pastor and Teaching Elder Adam Vinson. All right, as you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles once again to John chapter three. And I think everybody that's with us today has been to at least one of our services where we've taught on the, the Gospel of John. And so hopefully you've heard me say at least once, if not multiple times, that this this book is written to bring us to initial belief in Jesus, but also to Continue to increase our belief in Jesus. That it's uh, not just believing in Jesus one time and then uh, being content with that childlike belief, but but seeing that belief increase and grow and deepen. And so, uh, this gospel is not just for lost people; it's for believers as well, because the gospel is meant to uh, keep us believing and to increase our belief and to to deepen our belief in Him. And we said that uh, secondly, we want to see our belief in Jesus. Uh, especially in difficult circumstances, uh, be quicker and quicker, that we're, we're, we're quick to turn our attention to Jesus, we're quick to trust him, we're quick to believe him in the midst of difficult circumstances, that we reduce the amount of time that it takes for us to to remind ourselves or to be reminded that we need to believe in Jesus in the midst of these difficult circumstances. And so um, The Gospel of John helps us to do that. It helps to keep us believing in Jesus. It reduces the the amount of time that it takes us to trust him um, when we're going through difficult circumstances. Last week we saw in the the familiar passage of John 3.16, we saw what it means for God to love the world. We talked about um, rejoicing over a God who extends salvation based on his self-sacrificing love rather than our good works which gives us reason to come into the light versus cowering in the darkness, which is how uh, that passage kind of wraps itself up. And so we talked one about believing the things that we're capable of believing right now, that Jesus rebukes Nicodemus because he doesn't believe things that he should already believe, that there's things that have been presented to him, things that he's capable of understanding, and he has yet to really embrace those things and trust those things. And so it's a good reminder to us that while there may be aspects of God's word that are confusing to us, doctrines, theologies that we're still not sure about, that we are mature enough to handle certain things and we should believe the certain things that we are capable of handling right now. We should remember that salvation is not works-based. We see that through the Old Testament picture of the the bronze serpent and the fiery snakes that are biting the children of Israel, that when those complainers turn to that serpent, that, that, that picture of what Christ would look like on the cross, that they could have been healed from that, that plague. And we said that the worst complainers to the little bit complainers were saved the same way that everybody had to turn to the bronze serpent to experience the healing from their, uh, the plague of complaining uh, or the punishment for their complaining that had come through this plague. And so a good reminder to us that salvation works the same way, that the worst sinners, the ones that are guilty of the worst crimes, get saved the exact same way as those who were more self-righteous and more moral in their, their lifestyle prior to Jesus. Uh, we can be thankful for a God of justice and love. Uh, that he doesn't sacrifice his justice in the name of love. Um, We see that our default uh, condition is condemnation um, and that Jesus gives us the greatest display of love possible through the cross. And so I reminded you last week that too oftentimes I think we we are prone to question or doubt whether God loves us based on current circumstances that we're going through as though we expect that God has to constantly one-up himself. Um, that, that he's not in a situation where he needs to outdo himself from the previous time that he showed his love to us, that he, he kind of went all in the first time and showed us that great love through the cross. And so anytime we're doubting God's love, it's not that we need to look for a new expression of his love. Instead, we look to that old expression, that glorious expression of his love on the cross for us, that he, he died for us when we were sinners and, and he saved us and loved us in spite of our uh, lack of good works. And then we talked lastly about seeking to live in the light rather than the darkness. We should be decreasing in our desires to sin, increasing in our desires to see God's glory uh, come to this earth. And so the application last week was, does my life testify that a new birth is possible through the Holy Spirit's power? Are you a good example? If we were in a courtroom and we needed to show examples of the new birth, what it looks like to come to Jesus and experience this process of becoming a new creation, would you be good evidence to bring into the courtroom? Is your life a a good piece of evidence to show that the new birth really does take place in the life of believers? All right, so that brings us to John chapter 3, verse 22. Again, we come back to John the Baptist uh, and talk a little bit more about his ministry, and then we'll say goodbye to him. Um, John the Baptist here is continuing to do his ministry, uh, continuing to pave the way as Jesus' reputation and ministry grows. John the Baptist is still paving the way for that, but some of his disciples are a bit confused as to, uh, and maybe less confused and more frustrated about the fact that Jesus is growing in his popularity. Um, And so John the Baptist has to respond to these these disciples who are quick to defend him, kind of quick to come and promote John the Baptist and remind him of how great he is. And what we see John the Baptist doing in response is to make less of himself and more of Christ. And so I told you that uh, in the midst of our discussion today, I want us to see aspects of humility, and so we'll see that through um, this passage today. In a summary sentence format, in order to bring God glory through our humility, we must see our success through the lens of God's sovereignty while embracing our role to glorify Jesus and bring others to him through the life God has designed for us. In order to bring God glory through our humility— Starts with us seeing our success through the lens of his sovereignty. And then it involves us embracing our role to glorify Jesus and bring others to him through the life that God has designed for us. And we'll talk more about what that means. For our kids, humility means that we don't think too highly of ourselves. We don't think too highly of ourselves. So we've said here that John the Baptist's disciples are frustrated that Jesus is gaining attention and attracting greater crowds now says that after uh, this discussion with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples went into the countryside and they remained there and they're baptizing and John is baptizing near there as well because the water was plentiful and the people were coming and being baptized. And in verse 25, now a discussion arose between some of, the, some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So the stage is kind of set. How will John the Baptist respond? Note how the disciples of John the Baptist seem to make less of Jesus even. Right? They don't even mention him by name. They don't, they don't mention some of the things that John the Baptist has claimed about him. They just kind of reference to John uh, in a way so that John knows who they're talking about. The one across the Jordan, the one who you bore witness about, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Not even a question, really, but John answers them. More of a statement, more of a complaint, more of a frustration, more of a concern. What's going to happen to us, John? What's going to happen to our ministry? Are we being phased out? Are we becoming irrelevant? Are we expendable now? Are we no longer needed? There's certainly allegiance, uh, their allegiance is certainly tied to John the Baptist here, and it's probably a good reminder to us that we should never rally too tightly around people. Instead, our allegiance should be to Christ. In fact, one commentator said, a measure of success for any ministry, any church, is not how many people follow the minister or the pastor, but how many people follow Christ through that ministry. And the hope would be that no matter who is in leadership here at our church, that your desire to follow Jesus wouldn't be tied to that person being in a position of leadership here. Um, that, That we could move elders in and out, we could move deacons in and out, we could move C group leaders in and out. Um, that that people who fit those qualifications could come in and lead and serve and teach within this church, and people would continue to follow Christ. Um, that, that our allegiance wouldn't be tied to a human being, but instead would be tied to the God-man, Jesus. John, and we'll talk about what this means uh, later, but John even uh, brings up this comparison of a wedding um, and talks about himself acting more like uh, what, we would know, what we would refer to as uh, the best man in this wedding. Um, and he talks about Jesus being the bridegroom. And, and that's significant because remember, there's a transitional period happening here between Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. And there was certainly an understanding in Israel that the children of Israel should understand their relationship to Yahweh as that bride and bridegroom type relationship, that they were awaiting their bridegroom, that they were functioning as the bride we see this pictured in um, Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of, whole, of the whole earth he is called. All right, so the picture in Isaiah is that, that God is the husband of Israel. And then in Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So the Israelites would have been very familiar with this concept of bridegroom, bride, God is our husband, we are the wife type of picture. So when John the Baptist takes this imagery and applies it to Jesus, he's certainly elevating the status of Jesus in the minds of the people that are hearing him talk about this. Because he is is in essence calling Jesus the God of the Old Testament, right? Like he is applying deity to Jesus. He is, he is elevating him beyond just a mere man, beyond just an earthly prophet, prophet. He is really emphasizing the heavenly origins that we've talked about with Jesus, right? That, that he is more than just a human being, that, that he should be elevated to the status of, of what we've been worshiping in the Old Testament. And So it's certainly a nod to the deity of Jesus here in the way that John the Baptist talks about him I told you that I want us to discuss humility today and when we see this through John the Baptist, but I want us to be careful that we don't talk about this in a prideful way, meaning that we don't, we don't seek to understand humility, we don't try to become humble people so that we fall into that category of, of, when you think of a humble person, who do you think of? And now you've been elevated to the status of, hey, now you come to people's mind when they think of humble people, right? When we talk about humility, Um, I want us to see it through the lens of the fact that God receives glory through humble human beings. So the reason that we should even pursue humility, the reason that we should even evaluate our own uh, humility and and how we uh, deal with pride in our life, it's meant for God's glory because God receives glory through humble human beings. And so as we talk about humility today, we don't do so in an attempt to make ourselves better. We do so in an attempt to see God glorified more, that, that as, as we decrease, as John the Baptist talks about, as we become humble people who, who understand our role and understand our place and, and understand the things that God has tasked us with properly, God receives more glory. He receives more glory when, when we weed out arrogance and pride in our life and embrace more of a mentality of humility. I challenged you earlier in our discussion groups to think about this concept of humility. What does it mean, the types of people that you would describe as humble people? Um, and and That probably created a lot of different discussions and and probably uh, brought a lot of different attributes into play. I don't know about you, a lot of times when I think about uh, humble people that I know, I think too often times I think about people who are maybe quiet and laid back and I think that's not necessarily a good description of, of a humble person. I don't think John the Baptist was, was quiet or laid back in his ministry. I think he was very bold. I think he, he was very quick to proclaim truth. But it's certainly tied to his understanding of how he fit into God's plans. And so what I think we're going to see today in this passage is a couple of things about humble people and, and what it means to have a humble mindset. One, I think what we see in this passage is that Uh, humility means seeing a bigger picture, not just your, your narrow perspective on things, but being able to see a bigger picture and ultimately how you fit into that bigger picture, an appropriate perspective on how you fit into that bigger picture. And then lastly, that we focus on serving others for that bigger picture. And that's certainly where John the Baptist was. John the Baptist understood a bigger picture. When he's thinking in terms of, His success and other people's success, he's thinking of it in terms of God's sovereignty and how God gives good things to his creation and that ultimately God is the source of success. He certainly understands his role in that bigger picture, that that he has a role to play, he has a purpose to play, and it's a role of decreasing so that Jesus is increasing in the lives of others, right? And then lastly, we see him finding great, joy, great joy. Excuse me, great joy in bringing people to Jesus. That that he finds joy in playing this role of the, the the best man, where he's instrumental in bringing the bride and the groom together. Now, John the Baptist is in a in a spot where he's also part of the bride as the church, right? But he kind of pulls himself out and sees himself as one who is uniting people to their bridegroom. He is bringing people to Jesus, and he finds great joy in that. And so that's certainly an aspect of, of humility as well, that we see the bigger picture, we see how we fit into the bigger picture, and we serve others as a part of that bigger picture. So let's start by seeing how John the Baptist sees a bigger picture. Starts by, number one, recognizing God's sovereignty in success. Recognizing God's sovereignty in in success for our kids, all of my success comes from God. Told you that uh, John the Baptist's disciples posed this concern or posed this frustration to John. Certainly would have given him fuel and ammunition to feel hurt or neglected or underappreciated for sure. Because he would have had a support group here to to kind of rally around that mindset. Right? He wasn't having to convince his disciples that he was being underappreciated, they were in turn trying to convince him, hey, you're not being appreciated like you should be. The crowds are leaving you and they are flocking to Jesus. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven the truth that I want us to see here is that any advancement experienced here on earth is gifted directly to us by God. Any advancement experienced here on earth is gifted directly to us by God. God is the giver of gifts. He's the giver of good gifts. And honestly, you could say this is true for believers and unbelievers, right? So you experience some type of promotion or advancement at your workplace. Is that tied to your hard work? Certainly, right? Like that's not completely absent from the, the, the equation, but there's plenty of people who work hard that don't get promotions, right? So it's certainly not solely tied to your hard work. There's certainly the aspect here that John emphasizes that nobody gets anything unless it's given to them by God. And that's true for the unbeliever as well. You know, the Bible teaches us that that all authority that is placed over us is placed there by God. That's not Christian authority, but all authority. So any type of advancement, any type of success, even in the Old Testament, when you see empires rising and falling, ungodly empires, right? The Babylonian empire, the Persian empire, why are they gaining success? Well, the Bible tells us it was to bring judgment on Israel, right? So God allows these empires to come to play, allows them to experience success. It allows them to have advancement for his purposes, right? Like he's, they're, not, they're not succeeding absent of God's plans. They're absolutely part of God's plans. So any advancement experienced here on earth is gifted directly to us by God. Well, what does that mean for us then? First off, it means that we should avoid feelings of superiority when we experience success ourselves, We should avoid feelings of superiority when we experience success ourselves. We can do nothing good or successful apart from the kindness of God giving it to us. Our gifts and our opportunities come from God. Therefore, he must receive the glory. We avoid feelings of superiority when we experience success ourselves try to emphasize this when I'm, when I'm coaching football and trying to help believing and unbelieving athletes that I'm tasked to coach to, to, to get this concept that the abilities that they have, they're given to them by God. Now, they have done things a lot of times to, to grow those abilities, to enhance those abilities. They haven't squandered the talents that God has given to them, right? But ultimately, they didn't, they didn't create themselves fast, right? You really can't make yourself into a fast person. You can increase your speed, but, but some people are fast and some people aren't fast. Um, I remember when I was at my leanest and my strongest, my dad and my coaches said, you're just never going to be a fast guy, right? Like, like there was nothing that I could really do to move into the fast category, right? So there are things that God gives to us that, that we have no control over. There are talents and abilities that that we can enhance and we can develop, but ultimately they're rooted in God gifting those things to us, which really removes all opportunity for boasting. That we avoid any type of feelings of superiority when we get this bigger picture. And it helps keep us humble when we recognize any of the successes that I experience, man, they're completely rooted in God giving them to me. And John the Baptist is expressing that here. Any early success that we had before Jesus showed up, any early success that we had in attracting crowds and increasing our uh, amounts of baptism, I mean, those were gifted to us by God. That wasn't because of John the Baptist's superiority in teaching, right? He hasn't lost a step now to where he's losing his crowds to Jesus. Everything that was gifted to him early in his ministry was gifted to him by God. Number two, it should also help us to avoid feelings of jealousy when we see others succeeding instead of us. We should avoid feelings of jealousy when we see others succeeding instead of us. This protects us, one, from ever trying to advance our position at other people's expenses. Notice that John the Baptist doesn't try to downplay Jesus like his disciples did. He doesn't try to elevate himself at the expense of Jesus which I think oftentimes I'm prone to do, to try to make myself, my efforts, my work look better by downplaying the advancements of others. Because ultimately, if other people are succeeding, it's because God's gifting it to them at that time as well. Right? So if we embrace this bigger picture here, that John the Baptist seems to have this perspective about his ministry, any success that he's experiencing, I mean, that comes directly from God which absolutely means any success that anybody else is experiencing comes directly from God too. Which means we should take special care to not criticize others who experience success, especially those doing God's work too. Remember in the book of Philippians, when Paul is talking about people who are attacking him and his ministry and really downplaying his effectiveness, Paul highlights the fact that, hey, they're doing this, but they're also teaching the gospel. And so I'm, I'm excited about the fact that people are coming to know Jesus. Even if it means that my reputation's being attacked, even if my reputation's being tarnished, I can celebrate the fact that even these guys who, who aren't perfect, whose motives aren't perfect, I can still celebrate the fact that the gospel's going out. And so he's, Paul's even less concerned about his reputation than he is about Jesus and the glory of Jesus going forth. We see this also in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that they were baptized in my name. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So there was concern in this early church where people were, again, attaching themselves to individuals, attaching themselves to people, versus passionately following Christ. Even the people who were attaching themselves to Christ were doing it more in a superior type way. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse six, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another for who sees anything different in you. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Our competitive society is structured to compel us to measure our achievements against those of others. If a man is displaying gifts superior to mine and having greater success than I am, it's because God has given those to him. And that's something that we have to keep reminding ourselves of. Now, John the Baptist is in a unique situation here where He's got Jesus that he's being compared to, right? So Jesus always will trump him in any any effort that he has. That's why I bring up the perspective of Paul. Paul seemed to have a similar perspective about human beings who were doing the same thing that he was doing, right? He doesn't try to downplay these people's ministry. He doesn't attack them back. He recognizes these aren't false teachers, right? These are just maybe arrogant, prideful teachers, but they are teaching the gospel and people are getting saved, Too oftentimes we tend to downplay the success of others and uplift or over-exaggerate our own. That's certainly true of me too. Um, if somebody else is doing great, I can explain to you why and I can make, I can make less of their successes, right? If, if I'm the one succeeding, then it's certainly something that I'm going to highlight and try to, 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 to trumpet to you. And that's something that, again, John the Baptist doesn't fall into this trap. Instead, he is very willing to decrease into the background, very quick to to see Jesus increasing. We ought to rejoice uh, in both successes, both our successes and other successes, because both are being given to us by God. And if we rejoice to God's glory, then God receives glory in both those situations as well. To recognize that all spiritual insight and advance comes from God is to be freed from jealous efforts, at comparison. All right, so what does, this, what does this mean for us from an implication standpoint? We should strive for excellence in everything that we do so that the only reason for a lack of success is God's sovereign choice. Because the mistake would be to say, okay, if, if advancement is due to God's choice and, and God is the source of advancement and he is the one who is going to gift these things, then I don't really need to even try. Right? John the Baptist doesn't downplay the effort that he and his disciples need to make in their ministry. He just simply says, if we have success in ministry, that comes from God. But we certainly have a role to play in that ministry. Right? So any success that our church experiences, any success that you experience as an individual going into your context, trying to share the gospel with your family, with your friends, with the people that you share hobbies with, people that you live next to in your neighborhoods, any success that you experience there, that comes directly from God. That comes directly from God. But that does not minimize the responsibility that you have to go into those areas and share the gospel, right? There's a human element, there's a human responsibility there that we are to take the gospel into those areas, right? The new birth is certainly a supernatural thing. We've seen that in John chapter three. But what does John say at the end of this gospel? He says, I have written these things that you will believe these things right? Like I have done my part to put into writing the things that you need to hear to understand so that the new birth can take place in your life. We strive for excellence in everything that we do. We don't grow lazy. We don't put it all back on God. We, we strive for excellence in the things that we do. And then we trust God with the success of those things. Number two, embrace your role as a glorifier of Jesus. We certainly see this perspective from John as well. He says, A person cannot receive any one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. Verse 28 You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. For our kids, my job is to point others to Jesus. We have this role to to glorify Jesus, to be a glorifier of Jesus. The truth here is that our focus should be on making much of him and not ourselves. Our focus should be on making much of him and not ourselves. If God is the giver of gifts, then he should be the receiver of glory for giving those gifts out. John turns uh, the attention of his disciples to this comparison talking about a wedding, which is great timing for us as a church since we've got so many weddings coming up. We can certainly have have some relation here to, to what's taking place here and what's going on here. So number one, accept the role of a best friend at a wedding. He says, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly greatly. At the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John confirms that the growing popularity of Jesus is right and good. He reminds his disciples, and I heard some people in discussion groups talking about this. He reminds his disciples, I've been saying this from the very beginning of the ministry, that that I'm not the Messiah, that the one who is the Messiah would come after me. And John never seems to forget this perspective. He takes the time to, again, reaffirm to his disciples what they do, um, why they do what they do. They are, they are pointing people to the Messiah, not to John the Baptist. He doesn't bite at this opportunity to feel sorry for himself. And he makes this comparison of, of, of what a best man does at a wedding. Now, it's a little bit different than how best men function at, at weddings today. Um, back in these times, the best man was uh, highly responsible for the organization and the implementation of the wedding. Now, we've got a lot of weddings coming up in our church. I don't know if anybody has tasked the best man with these type of responsibilities. I don't know if anybody would trust the best man with some of these responsibilities. Uh, I had a great best man at my wedding. I did not give him any responsibilities for pulling off our wedding, really, right? <clears throat> he was meant to stand there with me as my best friend, as my encourager um, in my my future wedding. <clears throat> but in this time frame, the best man was was. was big time responsible for the wedding and pulling it off and bringing the bride and the bridegroom together. And so it certainly uh, gives us a great picture of what John the Baptist's role was because nobody at the wedding reception is uh, talking about the best man or, or the maid of honor, really, right? When, when, you, when you finally have both in the ceremony together, when, when the bridegroom has come and the bride has made her entrance, nobody really cares about the best man or the maid of honor much anymore. Right. Like they've done a lot of preparation and a lot of times the maid of honor functions that way in, in our weddings or or maybe even the wedding coordinator would be a better comparison. But those people are there to pull off the wedding. They are there to to organize and plan and prepare and develop this ceremony. And then when the two enter, man, nobody really cares about the other people, right? Like everybody's attention is on the bridegroom and the bride. And that's the picture that John the Baptist gives to his disciples. He says, man, I'm like the, I'm like the best man here, right? The attention shouldn't be on me. This ceremony is not about me. This is about bringing the bride to the bridegroom, right? And so he, he uses this analogy to help us see the role that he was embracing, that he is solely focused on making much of Jesus and his union with his bride. He wants to get things ready and then get out of the way. John the Baptist ultimately lived for the fame of Jesus to increase. So accept the role of a best man at a wedding. Number two, accept a willingness to be eclipsed. We must be willing to see ourselves decrease in the background if necessary. John recognized that God didn't need him to accomplish his plans. Martin Luther said, God created the world out of nothing, When I realize that I am nothing, perhaps God can create something out of me too. No matter who we are, no matter how much success we are having, sooner or later our lives or our ministries will be eclipsed and we need to know how to react when that time comes. John's satisfaction comes from knowing that that his God-given ministry has been successful. And he finds joy not in grudgingly conceding victory to a superior opponent, but in wholeheartedly embracing God's will and the supremacy it assigns to Jesus. You just don't see a lot of pride coming out in John the Baptist's response here, that he's very willing and ready to kind of slip into the background so that much can be made of Jesus. He's willing to see his ministry be eclipsed. He's willing to see someone else receive all the credit. As an implication for us, it means that we need to accept with joy whatever God's appointed design is for you to bring him glory even when others are appointed to tasks that seem greater or more desirable than your own. I started off this section by saying that our role is to glorify Jesus or to be a glorifier of Jesus. That that's what we were designed for. We're designed to be a glorifier. That means that you weren't primarily designed to be a husband or a wife. You weren't primarily designed to be a father or a mother. You weren't designed with some of these tasks or roles that we have. Imagine if that were the case and the, the lack of significance you would then find when you don't get to function in that role, right? When, when you're yet to marry and you remain in a single state or you've been married and now you're no longer married and you're back into that single state, right? Right? Your, your significance and your ability to bring glory to God isn't wrapped up in you being able to fulfill one of those roles that sometimes our society says that you should have. That we are created to be glorifiers of Jesus in whatever life we're given, in whatever life he designed for, He designs for us. So for some of us, that means we've got to bring glory to God as a husband and as a dad, or as a, uh, a mother and a wife. But it also means that, that we have to bring glory to God when we have very little money and we're not advancing much in our career and we're working a job that we don't particularly like, as well as when we have our dream job and we are being promoted regularly and we're making lots of money, that we have to find ways to glorify God in a tiny house and in a large house, that we have to find ways to glorify God when we have very little and when we have very much, that, that our purpose is to bring glory to God in whatever life he designs for us to have. And that's where John the Baptist was. He says, look, I don't, I, don't know, I don't know what's happening here necessarily, but I'm not going to try to promote myself and make much of me. I just want to make much of Jesus with whatever ministry he's given to me. Like early on in life, early on in my ministry, big crowds, lots of baptisms. And that may, that may tail off massively here in the next few weeks or the next few months. He said, you know, our, our crowds may dwindle to nothing and we may be baptizing very few. But if that means that Jesus is being made much of in some other way, then then I'm absolutely signing up for that. I'm absolutely for that. He says he finds joy in that, which is number three. Find joy in seeing people come to Jesus. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. So John the Baptist is highlighting for his disciples, why should we be giving all the attention to Jesus? Because he's just so much better than anything that I could do, John the Baptist says. I'm of earthly origin. I have an earthly message. I don't have firsthand experience like Jesus does coming from heaven. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. But then verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. For our kids, I should, believe, I should rejoice when others believe in Jesus. The truth that we see here is that without Jesus, people remain under God's wrath. Kind of goes back to what we said last week, that our default position is condemnation. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's not that the wrath of God comes upon that individual. It remains on that individual because that individual was born into that state. Right? We're born into sin, we're born under condemnation, we're born under God's wrath. So the person who does not believe, the person who does not obey the Son, the wrath of God remains on him. So without Jesus, people remain under God's wrath. And so we need to embrace the role that John the Baptist had, and that was helping people escape from that. Number one, helping people see that God is true. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. We need to help people see that God is true. Not that he is real, but that he's truthful. That he makes promises and keeps promises and we believe that about him. So yes, absolutely. The way that we live our life, the conversations that we have with people at work, in our neighborhoods, uh, in, in our hobbies, in our families, those conversations should certainly lead people to believe that God is real. But it should absolutely lead people to see that we believe that God is true that he says things, he does things, he keeps things as he's promised. Which is so important. We talked about that, that, that time frame decreasing from the time when we go through something hard and we trust Jesus. Why? Because people are watching us. People in our neighborhoods and our hobbies and our families and our workplaces, when they hear that we're going through difficult times, they're waiting to see how do we respond to those things? Because you've told me before, that God works good for his children, do you really believe that when when things don't feel that good? Right, like we should help people see that God is true through the ways that we react to difficult situations. Number two, we need to help people see the superiority of Jesus, that his heavenly origins give him authority over our lives. We'll get to this passage later in our study, but in John chapter nine, verse 24, Jesus heals this blind guy. And the Pharisees don't want to admit it. Um, one, because they know in the Old Testament that the Messiah was going to be capable of healing blind people. It's when John the Baptist even says, Hey, are you, are you definitely the Messiah? Like I've been telling people you are. And Jesus says, Hey, go back and tell John the Baptist that the blind see. Because. That's an indicator that the Messiah is here when the blind can see. And so you got this blind guy who can see who can see now and um, Pharisees are trying to discount it, trying to disprove it, trying to, to make light of it. Certainly not willing to, to elevate the success here of Jesus, but instead trying to diminish it. So they're just constantly questioning him, questioning his parents. Was he even really blind? His parents are a little fearful of, of testifying too greatly about Jesus because they're afraid of being put out of the synagogue, the passage tells us. So it says, Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So in John chapter nine, verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you wanna hear it again? And then it's almost like he makes a joke here. He's like, do you also want to become his disciples? Like, like, you have a secret like agenda here. Like, you you really want to believe this, don't you? Like, he's like, why do you keep asking me? Like, are you are you trying to become a disciple here? They reviled him, saying, "You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses." Right? Like, like we're we're law keepers over here. We got the chance to watch um, Pilgrim's Progress um, with some with some people from our church on Friday night, and um, there's that picture of. Christian who kind of wanders off the path and starts to listen to worldly wise men who directs him to, uh, to legality, right? And so he's trying to climb this mountain and, and the mountain is just littered with rules. You got to keep this rule and this rule and this rule and this rule. And Christian's just overwhelmed. He's like, I don't even know how to keep all these rules, right? And evangelist has to show back up and say, look, you got off the path here, right? Like, like you can't, you can't achieve salvation by keeping the rules. The Pharisees are like, look, we, we are disciples of Moses. They answered him, you were born and under sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Right, Like this guy has become a great teacher of Israel right here in the midst of great teachers of Israel. And they have no response for him because <clears throat> he's right. He's right. He's saying, look, there's no way that Jesus could do these things unless he's from God. So, so the guy's kind of admitting, hey, I don't know everything. It kind of goes back to what we said about Nicodemus. You may not get everything, but the things that have been given to you, you absolutely need to believe those things. And that's what this guy's doing. He's like, man, I don't have all the answers for you. I just know I was born blind. Now I see. And the only way that's possible is if this guy comes from God. And he says, I'm ready to believe all of that. I'm ready to believe all of that. We need to help people see the superiority of Jesus, that his heavenly origins give him authority, which leads to number three, help people believe and obey Jesus. If God is true and Jesus has authority, then we absolutely need to believe in him and obey him. Belief and obedience are tied together throughout scripture. And I know even in some translations that you may have, it may not even say obey here. It may say believe twice. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe the son shall not see life which again gives us indication about how closely tied these two words together in that they can almost be used interchangeably at times. You read through other passages in the New Testament, Acts chapter six, verse seven. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. <clears throat> what does that mean? It means they believed. It means they believed. And how did they express that belief? Through their obedience. Their obedience indicated their true belief in the things that they were hearing. In Romans chapter 1, verse 5, Romans 1, 5 says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, right? There's an obedience aspect to what it means to even have faith. Romans 16, 26, the The end of this book. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made to known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. The implication for us here is that we need to identify people in our life who remain under the wrath of God and be intentional in helping bring them to Jesus. Helping them to see that God is true. That Jesus is superior. And they have a need to believe and to obey him. And that obedience factor, I think it helps, it helps us know who remains under God's wrath. Because we live in a culture where too many people claim to believe in Jesus and they have not come to obedience and faith. They, they just haven't. Right? It's convenient to say this because it maybe, maybe helps them deal with their conscience and their conviction to say, oh, I believe in Jesus. But they obviously don't see him as the superior person that he is, the superior authority that he is, because they're not yielding their life to him in obedience. And obedience is certainly an indicator of true belief. We need to identify people in our life who remain under the wrath of God and be intentional in helping bring them to Jesus. So kind of recapping, recognize God's sovereignty and success helps keep us humble that we don't have to be um, having feelings of superiority when we experience success. It comes from God. We don't have to be jealous of others who are experiencing success because they're getting that from God as well. We need to strive for excellence in all that we do and leave the success aspect up to God. We need to embrace our role as a glorifier of Jesus We need to make much of him and not worry about making much of ourselves, to be that best man type of a figure in a wedding, to to really highlight others and really point others, and ultimately we're pointing them to Jesus, right? To accept a willingness to kind of be eclipsed, to be underappreciated, to not get the glory, to be content with God receiving the glory, to find joy in that, and to ultimately find joy in bringing people to Jesus because he's ultimately glorified by that as well, right? So it brings us to an application that I want to give you in light of all the application that we've kind of talked about today. Going back to why I said we were even talking about humility. Why is it important for us to be humble people? Because God receives glory through humble human beings. Identify some of the main factors that would prevent you from being described as a humble person and make plans to address one specific area this week. Here's the thing, most humble people don't consider themselves humble, right? So arguably everybody in this room would say, hey, I would not be described as a humble person. Even though we would describe some people in this room as humble people, they probably would not describe themselves as humble people. What are some reasons that you would think that your name would not be mentioned as a humble person? identify some of the factors that you think might would lend people to not consider you a humble person and seek to address one of those areas this week. Again, not for your own glory, not so that you become known as a humble person, but from the motivation and mindset that God receives glory from humble human beings, which means we need to be ever increasing in our humility. That when we talk about Jesus increasing and us decreasing, the way we decrease is we increase in our humility. We increase in our desire to make much of him. We increase in our desire to make less of us, to be more concerned about bringing people to Jesus than bringing people's attention to us and the good things that we think we can offer, that nobody receives anything good unless it's given to them by God. All right, family worship questions this week. What are some practical ways that we can show humility this week within our family? And then number two, what should we do when we experience success? And then how should we respond when others succeed around us? These are certainly lessons that our kids need to learn early and often, um, because we are living in a culture more and more that that does not teach and promote these type of things. Um, How do we handle success in our life? And how do we respond when others succeed around us? How do we We cheer for other people. How do we celebrate other people's successes and not simply view it as a failure on our part because somebody else is succeeding instead of us? Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much that John the Baptist gives us such a great example of what it looks like to be ever decreasing in light of a desire to see you and your glory constantly increasing. And God, we know that John the Baptist was only capable of even doing this because you were at work in his life, that he had experienced this new birth. And so ultimately, we can't even, we can't even give glory to John the Baptist this morning, God. We know it ultimately directs right back to you. And so God, we're asking as believers here today who, who want to follow you, who, who know how important it is to, to see you glorified and to see others come to know you, that you would increase humility in our life, much like you did with John the Baptist. Not so that we can receive glory, not so that we can promote ourselves as humble people, but God, help us to recognize that it's through humble human beings that you oftentimes receive great glory. God, give us a perspective of the bigger picture, that success and advancement, it comes from you. Then we can work as hard as we want to, and we can We can use the gifts and abilities as much as we want to and that ultimately success only comes if you choose to give it. So God, help us to be very quick to give you glory when we experience success. Help us not to to feel puffed up and arrogant about things that we're doing. God, protect us from being jealous of others who are succeeding around us. God, there may be people that we work with this week that are gonna get a promotion. God, help us to celebrate the success of others realizing that you have gifted that to them that you have designed their life with that promotion. And you've chosen not to design it for us right now. God, help us to see that you want us to be glorifiers of you with whatever life that you've chosen to give to us right now. In whatever roles and tasks that we're blessed to have right now, God, help us to be the best single people, the best married people, the best parents. Help us to be the best that we can in our roles in a way that brings glory to you. Help us to strive to bring glory to you in these roles and tasks that you've given to us. And God ultimately help us not to lose sight of the fact that there are people around us that remain under your wrath and that we need to help bring them to you. That we need to be good examples of, of what, uh, what it looks like to follow a God who is true, who is superior. God help us to, to show others what it looks like to believe and to obey and God, give us wisdom this week to, to examine our own lives, examine our own hearts, and to attack sinful pride that lingers in our lives. God, we want to come into the light and not cower in the darkness. We want to, we want to have a decreasing desire to remain in our sin and an increasing desire to see you glorified. So give us that perspective this week as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name.